Good evening. Testing, testing, testing for volume. Very good. Look at that. Thumbs up everywhere. Louder. (laughs) Testing, testing. How are we now? Okay. No? Too loud? Louder. Testing, testing. Very good. I think we'll go with that. See if it keeps on working throughout my talk on a Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, everything changes. There are two words in the English language. I don't remember what they're called, there's a technical name for them, the L and the R. Does anybody know what they're called? The fluids or the somethings? Because they are what allow one sound to blur into the next sound. There's a name for what they are, but I don't remember what it is, but I like them. I like the word blur. I think we like change. We like fluidity. Instead of, you know, the jarring of solidity and things fixed. So um, this whole principle of the flow of everything and how tuning into this is, is at the very heart of what we're doing here and the meaning of what we're doing here. <clears throat> so things change. Yes, we know things change. In our heads we know and we can see all around us massive evidence of change. It's springtime. Buds are swelling. Frogs are, whatever they do, croaking. The moon is changing its phases. We get to see that every day. Nature is the most brilliant uh, show of change all the time, all around, fast and slow. All the cyclings of change in, in nature. Um, somebody, I can't remember who now, we've had so many of us say so many things, but somebody was talking about the, the, the buds swelling up and then the flower bud emerging and then turning into a flower and then withering and then the fruit arriving and so on, for instance. I think that a lot of us like uh, time-lapse photography, where we can actually speed up some change and really get that it is changing in that kind of a way. There's something fascinating and... Uh, I don't know what it is that, pleasant anyway, about seeing change unfold. Um, I have been walking uh, out uh, Point Reyes Way and along by the Tamales, whatever it's called, bay or inlet, along the fault line. So even though we don't see the continental plates grinding against each other, there's that whole line that you live here with that is that that change, even on geological levels. Um, I like flying. I don't like flying particularly, but I like looking out of the window from a great height at the earth and seeing evidence of long, slow change, particularly things like oxbows in river valleys, the formations of, you know, the uh, I fly up and down this side of the west coast of the continent, so I fly over all the various... um, (laughs) Volcanoes. (laughs) 
And just, I mean, and even Mount St. Helens, which in my you know, lifetime of living here in North America went through a major change. And so all, the, all that evidence we know. We also know it on a much, much more minute and immediate level. You know, we know that the little changes we can perceive, the little changes of an itch being so rapid and the flickerings of our eyes being so rapid and, you know, just the, the little tiny shifts and shimmerings of things, how, uh, you know, aspen leaves called quaking and how they sh- shiver in the, in the wind like that. Mm. And then... You know, inside you, the obvious things, you feel your discomforts coming and going, your tiredness coming and going, your hunger arising and being satisfied and passing and so on. We know all this. We see it. As we become more affected by meditation, more sensitive, more, a little more perceptive, our minds becoming a little finer, the boundaries of that sort of expand. We, we can perceive what normally was too slow to perceive and we can perceive what normally is too rapid to perceive, too. And it's fascinating. And uh, it's, 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 it's fun, I find. For instance, seeing... I remember when I did this on some retreat, it was in I was at IMS in the fall, where they do those long retreats in the fall, during the time of the fall color change. And so there were, you know, the beautiful tree. I don't know if it's still there now with their big renovations, but there's one particular maple right outside the dining room and um, beautiful combinations of colors in this tree. Green in the middle, and then the, you know, the going to the yellows and the oranges, and eventually the reds at the tips, and you can see the oldest ones getting their change first and falling, and just watching that whole transformation of that tree. Beautiful thing. And I remember being intrigued in it because of its beauty, and, uh, and watching a leaf fall, you know, how a normal person wouldn't stand there and watch a leaf fall, but yogis do things like that. So watching this leaf fall and then having this realization that when did it stop being a leaf? For that matter, when did it start being a leaf? And it was on its way to becoming soil. At what months in the winter would it have changed from leaf to compost and when would it become soil? That whole slowness of the things always, everything shifting and changing, we start perceiving more. we notice inside ourselves more flickerings, more you know, rapid change. We think initially that we are such and such a personality and then we look close and we discover that's only true sometimes. I'm particularly like that right now, but later on in the afternoon I'm way less like that. I'm more like something else and so on. We start to really perceive the, the more subtle aspects of these things. So, we know all this. But actually, we don't. Our heads know. We know the theory. We can spout it back to each other. But we actually, when we look closely, don't live informed by that knowing most of the time. We would have completely different relationships with almost everything if we lived informed by the fact that it is, in fact, fluid rather than you know, solid. So what happens? We, we can see, and as we meditate, we can see this even more clearly, that usually things are constantly happening and constantly in a state of flux. And there's a kind of constancy of difference that keeps coming to us, onto us, into us. In through those sense doors, 
being generated. And these things are constantly a variation, as we've said so many times on this retreat, perceived by us to have a certain flavor, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And therein is a bit of a problem, because we completely believe that it should be all pleasant. We know perfectly well that's not the case, but we believe it's wrong. There's something wrong, and it should be all pleasant. And we spend, then, almost all of our energies attempting to make everything pleasant for ourselves. What we do, then, is as we're bombarded with the, this, the information, the sounds, the sights, and so on, and the ideas that come inside, is certain of those, there's an, an endless stream of... of I use the word bombardment rather lightly because sometimes it's not quite so intense as that, but sometimes it feels like that, sort of relentless. Certain things of the many things that are always arising, we get involved with, our mind gets into, and it it goes up when it's an up thing that's happening, a, a thing that is perceived as pleasant, we become elated by, and when it's perceived as unpleasant, we become deflated by. We get batted about by. We go up and down with the up and down of things. We go off into the future with things. We run into the past. And we can see ourselves. We're very, very all over the place. Our attention is all over the place. Scattered. As we get elated and deflated up and down, it's quite a bumpy ride. In fact, sometimes we get bruised and battered. And sometimes we get just thrilled and, you know, carried away with excitement. It's an exhausting bumpy ride that we're on most of the time when we don't know any other way. The other thing is, we are sensitive. We're sensitive. We're sensate beings, sensitive beings. So we perceive all of this through all of these sense doors. And that's, especially because it's constantly changing, we're always prepared for something different to be happening because it all keeps on happening that way. So there's a confusion. We can't settle down and say, this is nice, period, because we know it's not going to stay that way. We would like it to stay that way and think it should but we deeply know it won't. And so there is this sort of anxiety in us because we've got to be ready for anything. Anything can happen and does and will. So we're sensitive and that makes us really vulnerable to this change. We have a sentence here. We're we're sentenced to being alive until we're sentenced to death, pretty well. We didn't choose either. We're sentenced to receive all kinds, up and down and pleasant and unpleasant and boring. And we're also sentenced to lose them. And things get taken away. None of which we're doing. We're just, we have this sense, sentence of this life. And we are sensitive. And we're vulnerable because we're at the effect of this receiving and losing and upping and downing. It's hard being a human. It's bumpy. So what we do to try and give ourselves some protection from the bumps and some calming from the vulnerability of all of this is we try and stabilize things. 
And a lot of our efforts are to trying to create some form of stability in all kinds of ways. A lot of times it's because we, we try and figure things out. And we think, if we can at least have it sorted out in my mind, then it'll have some sense to it, and then that'll be a little more reliable than chaos that's confusing. And then, or we plan, you know, we think that if we can actually arrange it, then we'll at least have some idea of what will come next, which, you know, we know it's, it's ridiculous, but we do, or absurd. One of the things that I really like is um, I like um, stone circles. I also really like Orkney, which is a group of islands north of Scotland. Which And the reason I like being there is because there's evidence of human beings who've lived there continuously for the last 5,000 years. We're talking about back to the date of the Buddha and then the same distance again on back. That's a long time. And uh, that land happens to be a land where there's enough for human beings, combination of temperature and the confluence of two oceans, the North Sea and the Atlantic Ocean, that makes a mix enough in the oceans that sea life is abundant and bird life is abundant and therefore food is available and, and uh, uh, the rains are diminished by the Cairngorm Mountains, even though the weather comes from the, the Gulf Stream, so it's got mildness in the weather, and, but it doesn't get washed out by rain because it's a rain shadow area. It really works to live there for human beings. And they have found that and have done so for all this time. And I like that because I like being in lands which work for humans. I don't really like being in the kind of landscape where it's harsh or dry or... You know, you die if you stayed there, if you didn't have, you know, plastic bottles of water or whatever it may be, special clothing, you know. <laughs> but there's something about that liking, which is because it works, there's something that's trustworthy about it that's kind of predictably works. We like that. We like predictability because we're vulnerable. We like the idea of, lots of us like the idea of the tradition here. This tradition... We like tradition for that very reason, because it's a known and appreciated and valued and reliable tradition. <laughs> and so we take comfort in that, and that there are those who've trodden this path, whatever the path is ahead, and it's worked. I draw huge inspiration from that, the sense that this has been on, this particular practice we do is this ongoingly appreciated and honored and preserved and shared and passed on way that works to free us. I've, it's, I mean, the fact that it does is awesome, but the fact that it's been going for the longest organized religion on the planet is pretty reassuring because we're vulnerable and things aren't so reassuring on the whole. So we, we do what we can to be reassured in this flux and flow in all our different ways. So we expend all this energy attempting to reassure ourselves in all these ways. And uh, in many ways, we fail. Because even if we get certain ducks in a row, then one of them falls off, something else will shift. And so uh, we, we get a little exhausted by this endless attempt in trying to stay, you know, keep going through this situation we find ourselves in. 
one of the one of the things we do to just a little interesting image is in trying to keep things more stable than they in fact are we're like driving along in a car looking either out of the front window or out of the back window we're looking at what's gone by and it seems relatively stable as long as the road isn't too twisty turny or we're looking ahead and we can see what's coming more or less for a ways down the road but if we turn and look out the side window It's a blur of changing circumstance. And really and truly, it's the looking ahead and looking behind that we do for security and stability because we get nauseous looking out the side window. But that's really what's going on, the blur. And that thinking of ours, the way we perceive, because of this insecurity, we are, in our attempts to become, you know, make things a little more solid, we actually create in our minds solidity where there isn't any. So we tell a story which makes it seem like it really is happening. You know, we we identify with a certain personality because that gives us a sense that we're somebody and we last in this way. I'm an Aries, for instance. I have a definition, thank goodness. It's reliably Aries-like, pretty frequently. (laughs) We do this all the time. We actually take the blur of change and we create apparent solidity out of it. We, you know, we get, we have opinions. We, um, we have certain likes. We make things defined. Unfortunately, if we knew we were doing it just as an optional way to perceive for comfort, we wouldn't be so stuck in it. But unfortunately, we don't know we do it. And we believe completely in the story we tell. And so we are, in fact, imprisoned in our thinking, in the solid stories we tell and the solid opinions we have, and because we, we completely believe them. We don't realize what we're doing. But we do it, we do it, we do it, because we're vulnerable and life is a blur and change. It's unreliable. <coughs> we replay our movies. And I mean, sometimes, you know, in conversations, you know what it's like when you're, if you're listening to somebody who's telling their story with huge energy, you know, it's like they're really boxing themselves in. And we do that with all kinds of things, but we do that really with great vigor when it's something awful. You know, we just really tell it and tell it and then we feel the awfulness of it over and over and over. You know how we do it. But we're doing it. We're taking out of the flow some piece or pieces, putting them together, creating, so we stitch them up and make a movie out of it and then we're the central player and if it's a bad story, we're, it's a tragedy we're telling. Well, we know this in theory. We understand the theory. But we don't live our lives as if we knew it. We're not wise. Deeply. If we really knew this, we would never complain. We wouldn't have to have something if we just could remember that something is not going to stay something. It's going to break or 
disappear or get old and shabby or that whole relationship that we're building that particular need on is, isn't going to be there very long. If we could remember that part, we wouldn't have to have the things we think we have to have. We wouldn't resist. It's like trying to hold back the waves. We don't hold back waves, that would be ludicrous. We don't reach in and grab water. It's ludicrous. But we reach in and grab other things, equally ludicrous, because we have believed some solid thing about them. It's our thinking that can make the shiftings of this reality permanent, seem really long, and seem really solid when it's not so solid. We make feelings really solid by how we think about them. We make um, an, an experience of something long when we describe ourselves. I am something, something. And then when you really ask, or somebody really asks you, were you, were you that all morning? And then you think, well, are you that right now? Yes. <laughs> and now? Not so much. <laughs> but the statement of how I am is, a, you know, we make it long. We stretch out the moment by turning from the side window in the car down to the front, and it's like it becomes solid. It isn't really that way. It's the way our minds, what our minds do with the moment for this reason of security. It's not stupid. We're not stupid. We actually get a certain comfort from doing it because it's soothing. It gives us some false sense of security anyway. <coughs> In fact, when we look closely, we begin to see that every time the sense of me is constructed, it's through doing something to something or with something. It's wanting something. It's fixing something. By having some relationship of doing with something, that's, that's me functioning. You, you start seeing all this for yourselves. It's, it's extraordinary. But in the moments of, I call them the sunset moments, or the, the moon moments, we come outside from the hall, we look up there, we don't do anything with that moon. There is no me doing anything in that moment. There's no meing even in that moment. There's the moon and the cool air. And it's quiet. And we're quiet. Whenever we get in the way and take some piece of the flow of life and have a relationship of some kind with it, pushing it or pulling it or chasing it or fixing it or anything it, it's like we've put a moment of of freeze in the fluid. We've taken a, a piece and frozen it into something solid. We keep doing that, solidifying, by our very grasping, by our very doing. And it seems so real. It really seems to be that way. It seems to be the way I've perceived it. But it's extraordinary as we meditate, we begin to see that Things are all kinds of things, not just the way we perceive them to be. There's a difference between my perception and whatever is there. We start to see, we start to notice this. So, Nietzsche, N-I-C-C-A, Pali word, Nietzsche. Nietzsche means 
constant and dependable. You can depend on it, you can trust it. Something's Nietzsche. We like to trust. We like to depend on things. We like people who are dependable. At least we like to convince ourselves that people are dependable. (laughs) It's risky, but we like it. (laughs) Anicca, on the other hand, is not dependable at all. Inconstant. Uncomfortable, therefore. Unreliable. Fleeting. Shifty. Shifting. uh, Unable to be able to be completely trusted to be anything particular because it's about to shift into something else. That's a sense of insecurity. And we don't want to know it. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to go there. We want the opposite. So we meditate. And as we meditate, we start watching what's going on inside. And we see, first of all, how the mind is going up and down when things go up and down and how we get excited and bummed out and affected by certain bits of the flow. We see that. We start, inc- you know, we see more just because we're, we're not really told even to look for anything. Well, we tell you certain things to look for, your breath or your feet as they touch the ground and so on, but the workings of yourself start to become revealed and we see more and more we start seeing everything's changing. Even though in day-to-day life we don't look for that because we don't want to know it because it's too unstabilizing. As we sit quietly and calm down and we feel more innerly stable, we realize, my God, everything's changing. Way, way more than I first could, could even notice, let alone tolerate. We notice it outside and a bigger range of the outside of change. We're more tuned in to more like that tree changing at IMS, for instance. And inside, we notice increasingly how our moods flicker and change, how they rise and develop and then subside and then morph into something. We notice things like we think we have a pain in our shoulder and we pay attention to the pain and it starts to shift and swirl and become a tingle or become a throbbing or become something other than pain. Sometimes it disappears, sometimes it moves around. You know, sometimes it's unlocatable and so on. It's shifting way more, everything's way more shifting than we at first, first glance notice, right? It can be a little shocking we look inside and we just see, oh my God, there's like, I'm just, I can't stop thinking. There's a million thoughts going on. There's all this stuff. I'm bargaining with this and commenting. I can't believe how much is going on. Here I'll read you something from Francois Fenelon, a French, could you tell, a French (laughs) philosopher from 1600 and something. As light increases, that's your light, our light, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. (laughs) 
We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults are diminishing, the light by which we see them is waxing brighter. And we're filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So, I mean, a number of people have said to me in this retreat, and many times, you know, it feels like my attention's getting worse. Like, I just feel like I'm losing my ability to see. There's just like, I can't seem to stay with anything. It's just, it's because you're seeing more and more, because there is an enormous amount going on, flickering along. We normally tuned it out, and we got caught in just the big, loud stuff. And there's all of, there's this accompanying da-da-da-da-da going on, and little, little comments all over the place you're actually seeing that there is way more changing all the time in there it's fascinating it's embarrassing sometimes it's amazing but it's just what happens it isn't you doing it it's what's going on we're very busy little things in there when you look really closely at this whole idea of Vedna for instance, I'll back to the shoulder pain. You look at the shoulder pain and you can say, it's really unpleasant. That's what, yeah, I, I, the Vedna, the fla- I use the word flavor for Vedna. The flavor is really unpleasant. And then you stay because your mind is becoming calmer and you can stay. And you stay and you explore it. And where is it? And its boundaries, which are all blurry and shifty and the sensations of tingling. And, and suddenly it's, you're fascinated. And then if you think, is this actually unpleasant? It's actually, it's not, a, it's not unpleasant. It's maybe neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's actually quite pleasant to be so interested. Is the pain pleasant or am I making pleasant up? Or what's, it starts getting shifty. What it was a certain flavor can change because how you're perceiving it is changing. Your relationship's changing, its flavor is changing. It's not that things are absolutely pleasant and absolutely unpleasant. It's a flavor. How are you tasting that flavor now? How about your neutral person? You know, you give some attention to your neutral person. My fishwife lady, she definitely became quite unneutral. She became quite pleasant for a while. She became quite unpleasant when I discovered she was a very mean foster mother. And then she became really pleasant when she was sick. Nothing's quite as boxed in as we, our minds like to kind of make it neat and tidy and boxed in. How about your difficult ones? Already a few of you have said your difficult one is already way less difficult. Changing, changing. We are starting to tune into the whole shifting of the texture of our experience. It isn't quite as we thought. It's much more alive, much more dynamic much more interwoven with my perception of it than itself. Where do I begin and end? And where does it begin and end? Is it there because it's in my mind? These kinds of questions start arising. So 
So it is possible to perceive this flowing, even though it may be vulnerable and shifty, we can start really allowing ourselves to perceive it as we become more steady and as the minds become more calm and we've been doing lots of metta and we've been able to ground ourselves in the present moment and we're becoming more resourced and more trusting and the heart's relaxing and we've spent many, many days among good friends now and, and so we are able to let ourselves tolerate the blur without automatically feeling you know, undermined and some of you must know well Jill Bolte Taylor and my stroke of insight, that whole story. Anybody not know that story? A couple of you, a few of you. It's a neuroanatomist, really senior in her field at age 37, and female, which is not a typical position for a brilliant female person in this country. Um, she, Meaning she really was studying and knew well about the structure and function of the brain and had a stroke at age 37 and what was utterly extraordinary is because she knew brain so well and was so smart turned out that her stroke was totally centered over her left hemisphere and didn't affect the right at all and she in 10 years it took 10 years to recover was able to describe clearly her her experience and how she could sense completely with the right hemisphere functioning well. She could perceive, she could feel, uh, she could uh, relate, but she couldn't use the left hemisphere uh, linear thinking. She couldn't name things. She couldn't tell if it was near or far, here or there. She couldn't describe, she couldn't speak, um, but she could really perceive. And she kept talking about being a fluid she talked, being in her right hemisphere was the experience of being fluid and being in the left was the experience of being separate and, and you know, more jumpy. She was now, she didn't have any of the boxing anything in by descriptions or the kind of thinking that stops the flow. It, life was a, a fluid experience, she called it Nibbana. You can see her on TED Talks if you don't want to buy her book. Very interesting and she knew nothing about meditation, nothing about Buddhism but she knew about the brain really well. And uh, we, a lot, depend for our security on the left hemisphere and it's explaining and it's des- describing and it's predicting and so on, planning. And uh, we are a little more afraid of the right hemisphere. You know, in Latin, the word for left is sinister, sinestra, left-handedness, meaning you know, used to like 100 years ago, 50 years ago in England, slap and tie children's left hands down so they had to write with the right because that was too weird. <laughs> you know, that was sinister. You know, that's, that's the, the right hemisphere, this fluid, unable to quite speak clearly. Interesting. So, one of the things that this meditation is doing, it's revealing the truth of change. As we are able to tolerate and see clearly the truth of change, the blur of things, our relationship to things changes. Instead of getting attached to or resistant to certain bits of the flow, we let them flow. We're able to be flowy more, more in the right hemisphere in a way. We can see... um, Like with physical pain, we can see it going from pain, oh no, a problem, to being a swirling of shifting pinpricks of experience. 
different relationship with it. We can do the same with emotional pain. We can see that here's something visiting, coming, swelling, feeling like this and this and this. These are lots of the component parts. Gripping sometimes. We go become a wash sometimes. It shifts, it moves. We can notice these other pieces. We can notice what our shoulders are doing and our throat is doing and our hands are doing and our energy is doing and it moves by and something else. And it isn't what we thought it was. It isn't how we would have described it. It's a moving through of something, force, energy. In this way, we're able to be seeing more out of the side window than up and down the front and future and past of our lives, less solid, more fluid. And then the big things that tend to really captivate us, the things that we have to have and the things that we're terrified of and really oppressed by, go from being solids into, they don't go into fluids immediately, it's not quite as simple, but I love this analogy, they go from being like a boulder to gravel. You can actually handle bits of gravel. They don't turn into feathers and fairies, but they're not so solidly oppressive either. You can in a moment be with this emotion that's shifting into another emotion. In another moment you can be with this, in another moment you can be with this. It becomes bite-sized pieces of experience or momentary experience that we can handle. But the idea of this is what's going to happen and what it's going to be like is huge. And it's not really even true. So we become imprisoned by, oppressed by the boulders. But as we're able to be much more in the present moment and honest and really see things shifting and changing, we have all these different moments, more like gravelly moments and sometimes bubbly movements. And then we start looking at things like me. How solid are you, that sense of you? That one who was born all those years ago and who, born in Aries in my case, among other things, who still feels like she's the same one. She still feels like she's about six. Is she really? Is she really solid? There's a sense of being the same person, but when you look closely, which is what meditation is doing, looking closely, when you look closely, you're always shifting and changing. You you're, have all these display of emotions running through. You have whole belief systems that shift and change over your lifetime. You have values which change, some which don't, lots which do. You have skills which change, you have roles which change. Certain things trigger you in certain ways for a whole period of your life that change. You're not responsive in the same way to certain things. You get sensitized to certain things, desensitized. When you start looking for who you really are, and the mind in meditation starts to slow down and be able to... It, it, the mind doesn't slow down, but the, uh, the speediness of the mind that's untrained, that's speedy because of all of the changing stimulus, you, you disengage from all of the stimulus and you engage with one or two simple things like the breath so that that speedy reactivity and scatteredness, multitasking, which we're so good at, can take a break, can settle down. 
So your mind doesn't exactly slow, but it's able to get steady. It's able to choose to notice one thing over and over instead of many things very briefly. It's not slow exactly, it's just steadied, calmed, unified. The gaze becomes steady then. The way we perceive is steadier. Then we can see much more deeply. So as that happens and we look in and you look in and inside yourself and, and think, where is this me? We can actually see that there isn't a solid thing there. We can perceive memories and perceptions and responses and the ability to notice. One of the major teachings of the Buddha was these five aggregates. That instead of a solid person in there, there is this functioning, these different functionings going off. Changing with every new piece of input. And we've all talked about this in some way. Guy was talking about the birthing of that sense of you that's born and comes into life with some functioning, some doing, some planning, some worrying, some scheme. It's a verb. It's a verb in change. Very, un, very unreliable, this sense of me. And even the most solid, sort of seemingly most, even if my moods change and the, I keep being somebody who's seeing something and hearing something and tasting something and thinking something and worrying and we see that keep changing. When you get really quiet, your mind gets really subtle and really stable in its ability because you've been meditating and concentrating and it's been calming the gaze getting steadier and steadier. You can see um, you can see things like a moment of experience. You can see a, a sound. There's a sound, and then there's the recognizing of the sound, and then they both disappear. And then there's another moment, and there's the sense of me experiencing something, and then it's ending. And there's another one coming and going. You can see the sense of yourself coming and going with the, with the stimulus coming and going. Extraordinary. And then we, we think, well, maybe there's a, an awareness behind all that that's me, really. Maybe I'm back there watching this coming and going of my mind. We want to be here. We look for ourselves, and the more we look, the less we find. The me is the, is the looking activity. That's really all that's there. It's weird. What then happens? The more we can see instability, the more we can tolerate blur is we let go of so much of our otherwise getting involved. The meing behavior is getting involved with some piece or another of the blur, having a little relationship with it of hunting or gathering. And it doesn't bother. The futility of it is seen, the exhausted, relentless, trying to make it what it isn't is seen, the cost in the system of it is seen, 
And so it doesn't bother. It doesn't reach out and get involved with and mess around with the river. The river of flow keeps on flowing. And the busyness with it gets less busy. The experience of that is way less exhausting. It's way easier. It feels less oppressive. There isn't the urge. There isn't the need. There isn't this being pulled and pushed to have to do something. It's much more steady. It's lighter feeling. But it's so against the, the whole way we've survived, the whole way of our society, the whole way of the, of the uninstructed worldling is what the Buddha called us. It's, it's completely a radical thing. That's all based on accumulating, rearranging, making solid, making nice, changing the unpleasant. It's endless. That's the whole, it's our whole base of reality. And all of that is being turned on its head just by looking and seeing through that game. And so it's a, it's a deeply unsettling thing that we're doing. It's profound. And it's not easy because we completely believe that other way. We've relied on all of that way, always. And if you believe in reincarnation over and over and over and over, not just all these days of all this life. It's very, very radical. We, so we, we do what we know. We're trying to get skills. We're trying to get better. We're trying to be happier. We are trying to get, all of which is the old program. And in some moments, there isn't a me trying to get anything. And there's a sense of ease. But that doesn't make sense and we can't even describe that in the old language. It's hard to talk about, hard to teach. You can't teach it. We just see directly inside our own experience what is a moment of being at ease and free and what's a moment of stressing and working and getting. So all of this is actually, it's not a learning, it's an unlearning. We talk about skill building and we focus ourselves on meta and phrases and breathing and techniques and all, you know, the things. And it's kind of ironic. But as we do it and use these skills carefully and well, we begin to, things start more coming apart. What happens instead of the getting and the trying and the focusing, increasingly you'll be discovering, and you are discovering, we're hearing you say, there's increasing letting go. There's increasing allowing. It's all happening anyway. People do this more than anything as we become more able to see more in meditation. There's increasingly this and there's less this and this and this and this. And there's like this. <laughs> oh, 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 anyway. Oh. And it's a discovery, and it's always a delightful discovery, but it's, oh my God, what was I thinking? (laughs) What was I doing all that time? We we become able to see that there's a whole show, and it's a passing show, and it can pass. In fact, 
anything other is is ludicrous. And show, we use the word show because even what what we thought was something solid and real is simply an appearance of something with us being perceived as something. It's much more like a show than a reality. Extraordinary. So we, uh, one of the words I like is a display. Because there's this evidence apparently displaying itself onto this consciousness that's being perceived as something. And it's always changing. So it's like a light show and a sound show and a taste show. To be able to be okay in this new weird flux and flow and blur, there needs to be a certain capacity to trust. And because it's insecure for us and we're so vulnerable, one of the main things we do in practicing is we reassure ourselves, which for me really is is what the shamatha practice is about the the samadhi times and the and the metta the friendliness and the um, soothingness of calm we need a considerable amount of this to be able to tolerate the blur the insecurity the not what we thought it was at all if we're not secure enough for whatever reasons in this moment energetically, historically, our whole life story, whatever it is, any moment that we're not at ease, we can't do that. We can't tolerate that. We're insufficiently steady, calm, healthy, whole, healed, whatever. But as that healing occurs, and as the heart relaxes, and as joy is available and calm, and the beauty that is seen as the mind settles down and the, the fullness of life appears because now we can see more of the stuff that we weren't bothering to notice, for instance. Gratitude can flow. That sense of interconnection arises. All of the rich beauty that happens, we need that to be able to let go of the expectations, the predictability, the sense of that we are able to do anything about this show. So we need, the, it's the seeing clearly is the Vipassana, but we really need the shamatha practice with it for that capacity to be stable. So, for any one of us at any time as we learn this and this all the skills of this, we um, ultimately are letting go of the mind that keeps fixating and trying to solidify the, in, the unsolid, the liquid. And um, the way we are able to... I gave a talk once ago, called, long ago, called Dismantling Me. The way we, we can actually see more of the flow providing we are steady enough and we're we okay, is we can be tuning into, and you can deliberately tune into, the spaces between the things. We tend to glom onto the things. In my last talk, or one talk I gave sometime on this retreat, I talked about going outside and watching your mind glomming, because that's how we've always done it. We can, st- we can start unglomming. We can actually start noticing space in between the things that we normally would glom onto. You can notice the moments in your experience where you're not involved in something, engaged in doing, but those quiet moments that you would normally miss. 
the delusion of the missing part subsides as we become more present and the gaze becomes steady and the heart becomes reassured and we become more calm. So we can actually start noticing the, the lack of solidity. We can perceive change. We can actually be interested in noticing things coming and going. You can notice the rise and fall of a moment, of a thought, of a state, of fe- a feeling in your body. Watch it be there and watch it subside. Emotions you can really watch. They last just a number of seconds. Jill Bolte-Taylor, the neuroanatomist, measured them. She says, 90 seconds. When you get a big wave of emotion, 90 seconds and it'll be gone. You can see it. You can experience the moving through. You can notice sounds coming and going, out of silence and disappearing into silence. Things can start being less solid. Fascinating. You can encourage the mind to perceive in this way. Remembering that if that ever feels too unsteady, if the system is upset by that or disturbed or anxiety arises or some form of doubt arises, it needs some calming and soothing. Metta, be with the body, be with the breath. It needs to be held together. It needs to be reassured. Then when it's more stable, in a time when it's more stable, it can actually then see change and flow again. And then it can be releasing rather than grabbing and grasping. And so we play with these two. And it gets like play. So, Anicca. And when we see Anicca, what happens, of course, is we don't just see Anicca, we see that Anicca is another word, in a way, another version of perceiving anatta, which is another way of perceiving dukkha. Dukkha, as Sally talked about, is the complete unreliability of stuff, the undependability, because it's changing. The idea of looking for something in something that's about to change is a frustration. We live in a state of being unsafe, and that's dukkha, until we no longer want it to stay solid when there's no dukkha with flow. Flow then is a releasing instead of an an unstabilizing. Anatta is simply that things aren't things. A river is many things. Watch the river and watch the things. You know, a drop of water is that one thing, put it with others, add them all together, call it river. But a few miles back it was a brook, you know, babbling over the rocks, falling out of the mountains. A few miles that way, it's an ocean. When does it change from being a babbling brook to being a river to being an ocean? When does the leaf go from being a leaf, from being a bud, from being compost, from being, you know, leaf mulch? When do your bananas and banana skins and apple cores become the compost? When does the compost become the soil? When does the soil become next year's carrots? Like when, is there a change there? Is there a change? Is there a moment that's measurable? No such thing. Everything's turning into everything else all the time. The thing that you call banana leaf, banana skin, you call it something else in another. It's just a matter of time, and then it's something else. It isn't really that thing. It's just a name we give it for the temporary appearance so that we can communicate with each other about it. Would you hand me that yellow, curvy, 
cool-looking thing in there. We'd say, banana, it's easier to do. (laughs) But it isn't actually anything, it's just temporarily sweet and mushy and yellow, and then even in a day it's brown and gooey and disgusting. (laughs) Everything's like that. It's not actually that thing. It's a label we put on a thing in a moment to be able to communicate and have a relationship with it. We label it and we like it or we don't like it and we're, catch, we're freezing the flow of nature into banana, liking, hungry breakfast, satisfaction because of our relationship with it. It's just on this way, moving through. It's energy moving. It's basically stardust form and forming and reforming and shifting. That's what anatta means. It means life and it's all there. It's not that it's not there. It's not to annihilate it. It doesn't exist. It's pretend. It's not. doesn't mean it's hoax. It just means the thing that you are, the piece that you're labeling isn't actually separate from all the other bits that are its com- compounds and that it will turn into. Everything's like that, including our thoughts, including my take on some situation and then my response to it. It's all part of everything else. But as we do this, I, this conglomeration of senses with its history and its Ariesness and its all of its little bits and pieces, its Englishness, perceive in a certain way, respond in a certain way, and then that's my contribution. So out of this apparent separate thing, there's something that gets contributed. That's what's really interesting about all this, is what is being contributed leading to the truth and ease and well-being, or is it leading into more tangles? And that I can do a little tiny bit about by being more conscious. A whole long talk. Somebody may give a whole long talk on anatta. But it's not a separate thing from seeing flow and change. Seeing conditionality, seeing unsatisfactoriness. These are the three characteristics really one characteristic of how things really are, the Dharma. Another lens through which to be able to perceive. Hindrance lenses, factors of awakening lenses, Four Noble Truth lenses, Eightfold Path lenses, Seven, anyway, on we go. Four Foundations of Mindfulness lenses, Three Characteristics. All conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this completely brings the greatest form of happiness, which is peace. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. When we're secure enough to tolerate it.